Welcome to Newsworthy with Norrisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. Hello, friends. Welcome back to the show. Parker Palmer, Paul Parker, can't talk today. Parker Palmer is on tap for today. You're going to love him. He's going to be great. Who else you're going to love? If you're a difference maker or you want to make a difference in the world, what you're going to love, Lipscomb University's Marriage and Family Therapy Master's Program, which specializes in training people to make huge differences in the lives of individuals, couples, and families. Now, whether you're a new college graduate, someone ready to make a career shift, or a minister who wants to expand the scope of your ministry, the Lipscomb Marriage and Family Therapy Master's Degree offers a rigorous but fun and enjoyable, that's my addition, 24-month program that can prepare you to become a difference maker. Located in Nashville, Tennessee, Lipscomb's Marriage and Family Therapy Program is accredited by the Commission of Accreditation for Marriage and Family Therapy Education, which means the program has met the highest and most rigorous accreditation standards in the nation. To find out how to become a difference maker, visit lipscomb.edu backslash MFT or call 615-966-5237 and ask for Kathy Johnson. Now taking applications for fall 2019. Okay, before we get to Parker Palmer right now, uh, let me say thank you again to all of you who have uh, read the book, who've posted about it, who've shared it uh, on social media, who have given a review on Goodreads or Amazon. I am very grateful for it as the holiday season is around the corner. We've got Thanksgiving week coming up. Uh, I am thankful for all the support and all the love for God over good. It means so much to me. And as you're thinking about Christmas presents, nothing says Merry Christmas like a red book and you've probably already read good to great so why not read my book which i have now figured out kind of has the similar book on the cover but hasn't sold three million copies yet yet like because i'm assuming one of you is going to go out and buy all those copies anyway uh thank you for the love for the book uh, if you haven't left a review please do that please share a copy with a friend after you buy it for him and that's it all right on to the podcast All right, friends, welcome back to the show. Today we have joining us from Wisconsin, Parker Palmer. Welcome to the show, sir. Thank you, Luke. Thanks for having me. I think this is the first time we've had someone from Wisconsin on the podcast. Well, it's a small state, kind of out of the way, but we're here. Well, we, we missed out on Wisconsin, so thank you for, uh, for, for joining the show. I mean, I feel like everyone from Wisconsin is a Green Bay Packers fan. Is that right? Well, I grew up in Chicago rooting for the Cubs, so, um, you know, I love losers. So. <laughs> <laughs> outstanding, outstanding. And uh, today we have, it's, it's on a special day. Thank you for joining us. Uh, this is voting day. This is uh, November 6th, so thank you for making time. I know uh, it's a busy day for many people. Yeah, glad, glad to do it. An important day for this country. Uh, outstanding. Well, we will look forward to seeing how all that turns out. Um, let me tell you a story. Do you like stories? I do. Love them. Of course you do, since you're an outstanding writer. Uh, a few months ago, I received a copy of On the Brink of Everything in uh, my mailbox. And I- I'm, I'm, very, I'm very ashamed to say this, but somehow, I don't know how, I hadn't found your work. And I know everyone in the world has read you. So many copies of your book have been uh, consumed and purchased. Somehow I didn't. This book shows up. I start reading a few pages in it, and I think to myself, oh my goodness, what have I been missing out on? This is, uh, and so you've been on sabbatical for a few months, right? Were you in Canada or something? Well, at the end of the summer, my wife and I go up to the boundary waters of northern Minnesota for about a month. So okay. 
that was uh, mid-September was the end of that uh, idol. Well, as a Texan, anything real, really much uh, above Oklahoma is basically Canada to me. So Minnesota, Canada, forgive me for the uh, then, inability to differentiate. Then, then the North Pole, right? <laughs> I'll say, well, I've been waiting patiently. I have contacted uh, the publicist who's working on this book multiple times because I'm so excited to talk to you. So uh, thank you for the time. I have a bunch of questions for you. So I hope you're ready. I am, sir. Okay. So this book is uh, an accumulation of a bunch of different pieces that you've written over the years. Is that right? That's correct. Okay. Um, so we've got a bunch of different topics we get to jump to, which makes it very exciting for me. What, but when you're putting together this sort of accumulation of a bunch of different essays, is, uh, is there anxiety of like, what should I put in here? Do I feel like I'm missing something out? Were there pieces that you wanted to include that, that just got left on the uh, cutting room floor? Well, I published my last full-length book before this one. That was the ninth book. This is the tenth book. I published it in 2011. It's called Healing the Heart of Democracy. And it was a very long run to put that book together. Lots of Mm -hmm. research, lots of, of inward searching about what it means to be a citizen in this country today. Mm -hmm. And, um, I, um, when I finished that book and then, that was followed by a whole lot of road work involving healing the heart of democracy, which I'm still doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when I finished it, I felt I don't have another full-length book in me. So I turned to writing short-form pieces. And I did a lot of those for uh, Krista Tippett's public radio program, On Being. They have a wonderful website, and I became a weekly columnist there, along with uh, several other writers whom I admire very much. And um, after several years of writing short pieces, my editor pointed out to me that I was actually pursuing a a topic, and the topic was aging. I'll be Mm -hmm. 80 in a couple of months, and so this was going on between somewhere between age 75 and 80, Um, and uh, I hadn't even been aware until my editor pointed it out to me that there was a subject that would uh, it was kind of red red thread running through these these many shorter pieces. So then it was a matter of finding an arc, uh, as you know, that ended up with seven, a book of seven sections that sort of tracks aging through a variety of topics. Um, and uh, I, I found it a, a very significant exercise uh, for me. Writing has always been. Um, uh, a, a vocation that allows me to explore and understand better what's going on inside of me. Yeah. And um, so I think as we age, at any age really, to understand our inner dynamics is an important thing. Um, Socrates said the unexamined life is not worth living, and that kind of counsel is found in all kinds of wisdom traditions, including my own Christian tradition. Um, Look inward first and then see how you might reframe the outer world. So uh, putting this book together was a wonderful experience for me as I uh, grew noticeably older. Hmm. Well, I'm a a couple years younger than you, uh, just a few. You look Yeah, well, a a couple years younger than you. But I've... I've been processing this idea of to experience gratitude, one has to be aware of the finitude of life. And as someone, I, I'm 37, so a couple years behind you, 
But I found myself thinking, I need to do some processing on mortality, not because I have this morbid obsession with it, but because I feel like there's a correlation between understanding the, uh, the temporary nature of life that would increase one's ability to have gratitude in this moment right now. I see you're shaking your head, so we're on the same page. Absolutely. I believe that very deeply. In fact, when I was in my 20s, I was first exposed to the rule of Benedict, that mm-hmm. famous monastic rule written uh, in the 4th century, I guess. And um, one of Benedict's rules for the monks was daily keep your death before your eyes. And in my 20s, I read that and I thought, well, that's kind of morbid. I'm not sure I want to do that. I was full of life and full of juice. Um, But as I thought about it, I thought, actually, it's a very good idea to keep your own mortality in perspective because it does increase gratitude and it also makes you want to use the God-given gift of life in the best possible ways. And I think that's been a a practice and a guide for me for many, many years. But when you cross over those those round birthdays, as they call them in Scandinavia, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, the ones with the zeros at the end, I think each decade you become, it becomes harder to ignore your own mortality or to pretend that somehow you're exempt. Mm -hmm. Uh, So at my age, I I think that that long-term long-time contemplation of my mortality uh, has paid off for me in many ways. Uh, Okay, we're going to come back to the Benedictine rule, but that last sentence, it's paid off for you in many ways. Give me some of those ways that you think it's paid off for you. Well, you know, um, this is a culture that lives in denial of death. We we like Mm -hmm. to pretend that it ain't that way. Yeah. Um, Especially, it's not the American way, you know, to die. Um, We're supposed to be young and vital and engaged and active forever and ever and ever and producing, producing, getting effects and getting results. I think that leads to all kinds of pathologies in life, Um, the workaholic life, the the burnout life, uh, the ego-driven life that always needs to be proving something. And um, so I think the payoff for me over time has been not only that that slow understanding that, yes, someday I'm going to die and, the, and all that brings with it, but also the capacity to embrace the little deaths that life brings along the way. Um, that's, that phrase, the little deaths, is not original with me. Lots of people have commented on the importance of embracing such things as failure, the breakup of a relationship, the loss of a vision or a dream, a vocational aspiration. These are all things that hurt. These are all, these all involve something important dying in your life. And if we, if we can embrace those and, and say, yes, that's, that's part of my journey, um, I think it frees us to take next steps into new possibilities rather than getting hung up on grief about the past, about what's lost and what's gone. I also think it helps us become more compassionate toward other people. Um, A culture that denies death on every level, the little deaths and the big deaths, is a culture that is pretty cruel toward people who are experiencing steady loss um, or little deaths of many, many kinds. 
Um, and uh, this culture has that that thread of cruelty running through it to people that, uh, well, our current president, for example, calls them losers. And uh, it, you know, it's become a term of art for many folks. And uh, it's, it's a way of denying the common humanity we all share, um, which I, I do think is, is cruel. Yeah. Yeah, you, you talk about how uh, Quakerism has a conviction that there is of God in every person. And our mortality, if we can refute the, as you mentioned, Ernest Becker's line, the denial of death, and we can acknowledge our own mortality, we become more, uh, more compassionate, like you're saying, because we can see our own deaths in other people. We can be compassionate and loving. And it reminds me of a, a line, I think that this comes from Richard Rohr's most recent book, but when we learn to trust God in our small little failures right now, or our own little deaths, then when we get to the um, the precipice of the unknown that we've practiced, we've developed the muscle memory to trust God in these small ways now so that when you're at the doorstep, you can fully trust. As, as someone who's a couple years ahead of me, who maybe is closer to that than me, has that been your experience? Yeah, absolutely so. Um, it's one of the reasons I named my book On the Brink of Everything, mm-hmm. uh, which is a synonym, I guess, for the precipice of the unknown. And it's one of the reasons I say early in the book that <clears throat> I really like being on the brink because of the perspective that it gives me, the ability to look back and to reframe my life uh, in, in a way that includes the dark threads, the threads of failure and loss, as part of the beauty and the resilience of the total weave. Mm-hmm. And then to look around me and, and, and feel this sense of, of shared humanity with people who, who also experience loss, who suffer, and making more room at the same time for joy, hmm. um, which is obviously a very important part of life. Uh, this ability then to say we're all in this together in our joys and in our griefs, and uh, welcome to the human race, which to me are some of the most important words that we can hmm. say to each other when we're struggling or when we're, when we're suffering. They're certainly the best words that have ever been said to, to me, as I've written in other books, I've three times in my adult life taken a deep dive into clinical depression. And when you're there, you feel like you're, you're, you're a total uh, outlier, a total outcast, um, totally isolated from the rest of the human race. But to work with someone, a friend, a spiritual guide, a counselor, a therapist, who is saying to you in a whole variety of ways, Welcome to the human race. This is part of the human experience. It's healing, and, and it gives you a path ahead. I've benefited greatly from that in my own life, and I want to share that good word with, with other people. And then it, it, being on the brink also allows me to look down the road with less fear than I might have otherwise, you know, actually with a certain kind of anticipation. What's the next adventure? Hmm what lies around the corner. Uh, it, it seems to me, uh, as someone from a distance who could say, that fear would be a natural uh, feeling as one gets to, to use your language, to be on the brink of everything. Do you find yourself, you, you're saying you have less fear, more anticipation of what lies ahead. What are practices that help instill that sort of anticipation instead of fear? Well, I think it, again, is this lifetime habit of trying to embrace the little deaths and then learning that when you do, 
when you when you stop fighting your own limitations, when you stop fighting your own your own failures, when you stop fighting the fact that we fall down with some regularity, you're freed to see what exciting possibilities might come next. Uh, one of the images I sometimes use is um, goes way back to when I was in my 30s, and I um, in the, in the Quaker community we have this phrase that. You know, if you pray and, and if you stay centered and if you listen to the inner teacher, way will open. Uh, just mm-hmm. be faithful. The way will open. And I was finding myself um, doing all the things I, suppo- I thought I was supposed to do, but no way was opening in front of me. I wasn't finding my vocation. I wasn't finding that sense of meaning and purpose that I had hoped to have by that time in my life. So... I sat down with a Quaker elder whom I respected, and I said, Ruth, this is what's happening. I don't understand it. Way is not opening for me. And she smiled. She was probably in her 70s at the time. And she said, well, Parker, um, way has never opened in front of me, but a lot of way has closed behind me, and that's had the same guiding Mm. effect. And I, I thought, what a wonderful image. The image that came to me, Luke, was that I had been standing there knocking, knocking, knocking on the door that had closed, and nobody was answering. They, it was locked. They weren't letting me back in. All I had to do was to turn around, and suddenly there's the rest of the world with a million, million doors that might open to me. Hmm. But if I don't accept the closed door, if I don't accept the path that has, is no longer available to me, I'll never make that turn and see what is available to me. So a lifelong habit of of looking at things that way has me approaching 80 in my life with the same sense. Okay, certain doors are closing. Um, You know, I'm I'm losing my ability to multitask. I'm losing some of my memory. I'm losing some energy. I still love mountain hiking, but I go a lot slower and with a lot more caution than I used to when I'm in the Sangre de Cristo Mountains of, uh, of, of, of New Mexico. Um, and yet I, I still hike. Um, and I'm eager to know what's around the next corner, what's above the next uh, uh, reach of the mountain. Um, and, and I feel that very much about the journey toward death itself. As I say in the book, I have no bad memories of the mystery from which I came. So I have no reason to be fearful of the mystery to which I'm returning. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. That, that's a quote uh, that you mentioned in the book that uh, from mystery we go, but in the middle, like there's a lot in between the two mysteries of where we come from and where we go. Um, it, it seems that like curiosity has been a common thread throughout your life. When, when, I'm reading you describe your writing process. It seems like you're saying these are things that I don't understand. I want to learn more about. And so you've had curiosity all throughout your life that your, your work has perpetuated and built upon. And so in some ways it makes sense that it would carry on until, until this part where you're on the brink of, of whatever's next. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for picking that up. Uh, as I say in the book, when, when people ask me why I became a writer, I finally learned to give a truthful answer, and the answer is I was born baffled. Mm. Uh, I, I think, you know, I, I, the doctor pulled me out and slapped me into breath, and I took a look around, and I said, what the heck is this all about? 
I, I was baffled. I was curious. And of course, those of us who have raised children or who have the privilege of spending time around little kids, we know that curiosity is the birthright gift of every human being. I've never met a child who wasn't curious. And when they get speech, they, they are filled with questions, mm-hmm. so many that they can sometimes drive parents crazy. Why this? What about that? Et yep. cetera, et cetera. And, and it's a delight. And then somehow in life, we shut that down. Schooling often shuts it down because what's rewarded in too, too much of our schooling is not curiosity, but having the right answer, mm-hmm. which means the answer that's at the back of the book or the answer that the teacher wants you to give. So I've, I've been blessed, I think, by mentors and by life experience itself to be able to keep curiosity alive. And I continue to be baffled by almost everything uh, that I wake up to every morning. And, and that has driven my a life of inquiry, a life of writing, a life of praying and meditating, a life of living in community, trying to understand myself in relation to yeah. other people. I, I think that's uh, something I, I, I deeply respect, maybe because that's uh, been my journey as a baby writer. It's hard for me to compare myself to a writer to you. I just had my first book came out last month. And that, congratulate! Thank you. I, I um, I've got my next book. I've got to turn it in, in a couple months. And the the things that I'm most fascinated to write about are things that I'm trying to process myself. And these are things that the writing pro- projects become an excuse for me to get to kind of do a deep dive into these subjects that I just need to. I, I want to figure them out. I want to learn more about. And, and that's part of the reason that I have a little this interest in mortality and your perspective on this because uh, that's something that's that doesn't make sense to me. And this is new to me. And uh, the Benedictine practice of always keeping death at the forefront doesn't, doesn't make sense to me. And uh, you reference uh, one of uh, a Benedictine monk uh, named David Steinel Rass. I don't know if I'm saying his Right. David Steinel Rass. Okay. Well, mm-hmm. You sounded better saying it than I felt like I said it, but let me read part of the quote to you. The finality of death is meant to challenge us to decision, the decision to be fully present here, now, and so being eternal life. For the eternity rightly understood is not the perpetuation of time on and on, but rather the overcoming of time by the now that does not pass away. And that's a, an amazing call for what keeping death in front of you can be. You've said this made more sense to you as you've gone through those round birthdays, as you described them. Uh, talking to someone in their 30s, what do you think is realistic that we can grasp as we haven't gone through as many of those round birthdays and experienced the life that maybe helps enable you to receive that, that gift of keeping death before you? Yeah, well, it's a great question. And of course, it varies from person to person and, 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 and human development varies from person to person. So when the stage at which one is ready to start entertaining death with this, with the kind of um, respect that we're talking about here, I, I think can't be quite predicted. But let me say that I know a group of people, for example, in their 20s who have made a great impact with a program called The Dinner Party. What is The Dinner Party about? The Dinner Party is for young people who have lost parents and other loved ones to death early in their lives. And they are wanting to engage that subject at a, at a level of 
of seriousness and insight and compassion that they don't find available in the larger society. So there's a bunch of, I, I did not experience my first death until a beloved grandfather died when I was 20 years old. And at the time, there, there wasn't any particular help for me. There certainly wasn't a community of peers to help me come to terms with that in a way other than sort of cheap piosity. You know, well, he's in a better place or, you know, whatever, he's, he's out of his pain and so forth. These young people want to go deeper with that. They want to integrate this experience into their lives. They want to understand what it's all about. So I think one thing that must be acknowledged is that there are a lot of young people in this society who are already pretty intimate with death, mm -hmm. yeah, especially if you look at, for example, the African-American community. In any city I know, the number of young black men being gunned down, um, either through the drug trade or by police um, is, 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 is crushing and cruel. And a lot of young people in tough urban situations live with a daily threat of death in their lives. Their, their mothers send them off to school, you know, not knowing whether they're going to come home alive again. And of course, with school shootings rampant across this country, um, a lot of parents and a lot of kids worry about that as part of the educational scene these days. So I think, you know, I think that the, 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 um, the denial of death doesn't serve anybody well, uh, to quote that Ernest Becker phrase again. Um, and, and young people, I think, the, the ones I talk to are is in much need of understanding these things and of um, understanding probably isn't the right word, learning how to hold these realities in a life-giving and generative way. I think, I think when, um, when St. Benedict said, daily keep your death before your eyes, he, di he, didn't, he wasn't saying to monks, and just forget about all the other things that monastic life involves, you know. Forget about the celebrating, forget about the physical labor, forget about the hours of prayer, forget about working in the fields or working in, as Thomas Merton would say, making cheeses for Jesus, which he thought was, was the main occupation of, uh, of the Abbey of Gethsemane. He used to say, we, we, we behave like we're a monastery, but we, but we behave like a, a munitions factory under wartime conditions. He had, he had a great sense of humor about monastic life. I don't think Benedict meant those things. I think he was making a distinction between the foreground of your life and, and the deep background of your life. So there's a, there's a far horizon called death. Uh, if you can keep an eye on that while you also are attentive to what's going on in the foreground, a lot of things uh, fall into perspective, I think. Yeah. Uh, one of the gifts of being a pastor is that you get the invitation into the sacred spaces, or at least my experience has been the sacred spaces where people deal with their mortality, that deal with the grief of a loved one, of, uh, of a child, of a spouse. And I, I find few things as reorienting to me as a husband as going to lunch with our widows and hearing them describe their deceased spouse and thinking to myself, what are the words that I want to be spoken of me? How do I want to live my life? And it's a 
for, from, from my experience, it's been something that is almost like this North Star that says, all right, let's get you lined back up. This is where you're headed and live in light of this and, and enjoy right now. Yeah, I think that's very well said. And I think that's the, the main point of David Steindlerast's quote, you know, the, this eternal now, which yeah. Buddhists talk about, which Tillich mm-hmm. talked about, Paul Tillich talked about. Um, the, the now is is really all we have, and we must occupy it fully if we're if we're fully occupying God's gift of life that has been given to each and every one of us. And the other thing I would say, your 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 very touching comment about sitting with people as a pastor who have lost loved ones, it's my experience of such people that after going through. A, a, a deep and often prolonged period of underground grief where they where they feel as if life will never again be worth living because this most precious person has been taken from them around whom their lives had revolved. They, so many of them emerge, awakening one day down the road, kind of taken by surprise by the fact that not not in spite of that loss, but because of that loss, they have become larger, more compassionate mm-hmm. people. They're, they are more understanding of other people's struggles. They have more room in their lives for, you know, what we would call community in the broadest sense of the term, that life is no longer restricted to the walls of the private dwelling or the intimate relationship, but it's open now to, it's welcoming to more people in more conditions of life, they become what Henry Nowen and others have called the wounded healer. Mm-hmm. And um, it's, a, it's a beautiful thing to see. Uh, ultimately, don't all of us have the task of trying to find meaning and purpose in experiences that, that from a secular point of view or from a, a, a kind of common sense point of view, seem meaningless and purposeless. I think that's a central task of, of human beings, and I think the great wisdom traditions, the great spiritual traditions, are an awful lot about um, making meaning out of things that seem meaningless from a secular standpoint. Yeah, one of the things that you point to is that it's not just the inclusion of the quote-unquote sacred moments and the the light part, the good parts of us, but it's the inclusion of every part of us, even the shadow side, the parts that we don't want to be around. And you, you make the observation that the word integrity comes from the root word that means intact. And so part of being a, an integrated person is that you're bringing your good stuff and your bad stuff. And you, you talk about Thomas Merton, who you came across uh, towards the end of Merton's life, and he talked about before you can have a spiritual life, you have to have a life. And then your response to, to say for the, you obviously know your response, but to the listeners, um, Merton's word hit me like a one-two punch. I've already got one, a life, but it's a God-awful mess. But I think he's saying that only there can I find my spiritual path. So moving away from the illusion that I'm all good or all light, but to incorporate all of that somehow brings us to reality. How so? How, how does that work? Well, you know, I, I think, um, let, me, let me go back to one of the most formative experiences of my life, which is my experience of clinical depression, mm-hmm. three times, long months spent wondering if this was the day to end it all. Mm-hmm. And of course, at my age, 
with the life I've been graced to live, I'm very glad I didn't. But it was a great struggle. Hmm. I, I learned through inner work, helped along by pastoral counselors and therapists, that part of the reason for my particular depression, and I hasten to say not all depressions are the same, so I'm not giving a prescription or, or you know write, writing a textbook here, but my particular kind of depression had come a lot from trying to deny my own shadow and pretend that I was only the golden boy, the, the light-filled light-bearer that I had often been treated as uh, when I was growing up. I was a good student. I was a good boy. You know, I was doing all the right things. And I thought that's all I was. And even though the other stuff was creeping in from underground and on the edges, I was living in, in denial of that. So when you, when, you, <clears throat> when you live in denial of the whole of who you are, when you think perfection, or excuse me, when you think wholeness means perfection, which it doesn't, it means embracing everything you've got, including your imperfections, as part of who you are. But when you, when you think that perfection is the goal, you, you're, you are ultimately faking it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, you, you have to be faking it. You're masking yourself. You're living behind a wall. You're not truly available for relationship when you have a mask on or you live behind a wall. You're not truly available to God when you put a mask on and live behind the wall. And, and a lot of people, I think, end up living that way for a very, very long time. So <clears throat> being real has huge benefits. Among other things, I think one of the most fundamental human yearnings is to feel at home in your own skin on the face of the earth. And if you can't be real, if you can't acknowledge the whole of who you are, you can never feel at home in your own skin. And that's a, that's a huge loss, to, to live your days nervous that you're going to be found out, um, that, that, you know, that somehow people are going to discover that you're a fraud, which at some level is, is what you are when you're pretending that you're, that you're perfect. I, I can't. At my age, I can't imagine a sadder way to die than to realize at the very end of the road that in my 80-plus years that I was given on this planet, I never showed up as my true self. Mm. And so for me, part of the reason that I, I try to write about my shadow, not only my depression, I wrote a book called The Courage to Teach that has been read by a lot of teachers and used in a lot of teacher education programs. And the the foundation stone of that book is my own struggles and failures as a teacher. That's why I call it The Courage to Teach. And that's why I think just in the title alone, a lot of teachers recognize, oh, this, this may be a book worth reading because it does take courage to teach which is a daily experience of falling down and getting up and falling down and getting up and yeah. on and on and on and finding reason to, to carry to carry forward. So that that you know that grounding in reality I think is absolutely essential to live the fullness of a human life. Yeah. Uh, let me read another quote uh, that you wrote that I found to be extremely moving. The spiritual journey is an endless process of engaging life as it is, stripping away our illusions about ourselves, our world, and the relationship of the two, moving closer to reality as we do. So we're, we're to engage life as it is, engage who we are as we are, 
in Christianity, the religious tradition I'm a part of, we've often talked about our putting away our, our former self, our sinful ways. And so, you know, Merton talks about our true self and, you know, to, to, to mix those two metaphors together, Paul says, let's put away our former self, the, the ways of the flesh, and we want to live into this, this identity that, that God has for us. So on the one hand, we want to put our sinful ways behind us, but there's, there's something about integrating their existence. Is that what you're saying into the spiritual journey, a- acknowledging them? Yeah, I think integration is a good word, and acknowledgement is part of the journey toward integration, to acknowledge that, you know, I, we all have impulses and desires, and we've all said things and done things that represent that shadow side coming up. But what I'm a Christian, too, have been all my life, don't know what my life would be without the formation of Christian spirituality and, under, and understanding. Um, and I, I, I think too often what Christians have done is to say, if I if I if I pretend that I'm that I'm totally rid of all that, it gives it less power over me. Mm-hmm. My experience is that if you pretend you're rid of it, it gives it more power over you. It then sneaks up on you unconsciously, subconsciously, and hauls you down. We have many many stories from our religious traditions uh, that include terrible, terrible things like pedophilia that I think come out of people trying to ignore their shadows and being caught up in a system of belief that encourages them to do exactly that. I think confronting the shadow, confronting those impulses in us, I mean, somebody once said nothing has happened in human history that isn't latent in every human cell. Mm -hmm. You know, Hitler is latent in me. Um, I have to acknowledge the fact that I, that I, that I can succumb to a certain fascism of the heart. It's a phrase I've used in, in other writing where if the, if the difference between you and me becomes too great, I want to kill you off. I, I don't necessarily want to do it with a bullet or a gas chamber, but I want to kill you off with a dismissive phrase, uh, a label of some sort that renders you irrelevant to my life. And we see that going on all the time now in our politics with these this terrible, divisive, um, you know, divide-and-conquer politics that we have going on where you, you throw a label at somebody to render them irrelevant to your life. Oh, you're just a liberal or you're just a conservative. You know, you're just a secular humanist, or you're just an evangelical. Well, if rendering someone irrelevant to your life with a label isn't the equivalent of killing them off, I don't know what is. Mm -hmm. So, to me, fascism of the heart has a very significant meaning, and we all have those potentials latent within us. And so I I think that living, you know, living in reality... I think getting disillusioned about ourselves is a very important step toward becoming whole and becoming more available to God. Yeah, I just, uh, I guess a week and a half ago was in Jerusalem and I went to Yad Vashem and walking through the, the Holocaust Museum uh, was heartbreaking. It was, uh, it was painful. And it was also a reminder, like you're saying, uh, fascism was a, Fascism, 
can't say that word, of the heart, uh, what they do is not too many steps away from me. I mean, if, if you've read uh, The Banality of Evil, it's a reminder that it's the small things that all of us can do in, a, in our own small, complicit ways that can turn yeah. into this sort of monstrous reality. And it, it, it's all of us. It's, it, anyway, it, it's all there, and it's us. And I, I think one of the great insights you have is the, will, the ability to hold this tension of uh, there are good things about me, but the, there are also broken things about me, and wholeness is integrating all of it together. And to do that, we require paradox. And so you reference a uh, Nobel Prize winning physicist, uh, Bohr, is that the name? Niels Bohr, and so the yeah. quote is, the opposite of a correct statement is a false statement, but the opposite of a pr- profound truth may be another profound truth. You go on to say this, thinking paradoxically is key to creativity, which depends on the ability to hold divergent ideas in a way that opens the mind and heart to something new. Living paradoxically is key to personal wholeness, which depends on the ability to embrace one's self-contradictions. Yeah. How, how do we yeah. how, uh, how do we get to being able to hold this paradox these paradoxes? Well, let's let's start with the fact that Christians especially are really called to learn how to hold paradoxes because Jesus's teachings are incomprehensible if you don't understand paradox if you can't live with paradox. The last shall be first, and the first shall be last. What the heck does that mean by ordinary logic? Or you seek your life, you'll lose it. Lose your life, you'll find it. What the heck does that mean by, or, by ordinary logic? Um, on and on you could go through almost all of Jesus' teachings and find paradox after paradox where he's, I think it was, uh, uh, I'm losing the name right now, but the, the man who established Koinonia Partners down in America's Georgia, Clarence Jordan, um, once wrote a book called The, the, the Downside of Kingdom which was all about the paradoxes in Jesus's teaching. So we have right at the core of our own Christian tradition, you and I, Luke, we have this challenge to embrace a life of, of paradox. And I, I use a very simple analog with people. The, the body, the human body, daily, moment by moment, lives a paradox, which is that in order to survive, we must breathe in and we must breathe out. If, if, if breaking a paradox and saying, I only like one pole of that paradox, you know, I like the winning side, not the losing side, is kind of like saying, you know what, I think I'm basically a breathing out kind of guy, so that's what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. Well, then my life isn't going to be very long, uh, if I could even sustain that. And so... We, we learn a lesson from just watching our bodies hold these very complicated paradoxes on every level of our physical being. And, you know, if you're raising teenagers to crank it up another level, children of any age, you're holding paradoxes all the time. How, how does a good parent or a good teacher combine two things that children des- desperately need, freedom and discipline? What is that about if you don't understand paradox? And and so paradox can't mean, well, for 12 hours you lock them in their rooms, and for another 12 hours a day you let them roam free on the streets. You know, obviously, 
there's a much more complicated dance we have to do with each other and with ourselves to old paradox. But <clears throat> people do learn how to do it. I, I love the breathing thing. I've just found myself being intentional. Of I, every second, I'm in a paradox. That's that's the human existence. That's that's so so good. Um, uh, earlier, we we referenced the Diane uh, Ackerman line of. Uh, it began in mystery, and it will end in mystery. But what a savage and beautiful country lies in between. And I think, I think your book has communicated that. Like it, it describes the beauty of what what is in life right now, but also that there's going to be something at the end, and it's not forever. And in doing so, it instills gratitude. So uh, I am beyond grateful uh, for the book and the time. And I know part of the thing that you talk about in the book of. Um, uh, more experienced people need to be, I think the word you used was generative and passing down to others. And I hope, uh, I obviously, I hope you see the connection. Obviously what you're doing in the book is, is doing that for, for some of us who are a little year, a few years behind you. So I humbly say much thanks. Well, my, many thanks to you also, Luke. And let me just say again, congratulations on your first book, which actually came three years earlier in your life before my first oh, did book it really? And that second book is on the way. So you're, you're way ahead of the game as far as I'm <laughs> concerned, man. Well, well, thank you so much. I hope to uh, be able to write nine books myself one day, but uh, th- thank you for all you've done. And just as you, you came across Merton uh, as he was a more experienced person and then you became a big fan of his work, I can see myself following the same suit with your work. So I've been deeply moved. And I'm embarrassed I haven't read your stuff beforehand. As I, I read all the endorsements, I'm going, I, these are people I know, and I don't know how they, how Richard Rohr didn't tell me to read your books. I don't know. I'll blame him. Well, you know what? Millions of people haven't read my books, so you've got company. <laughs> well, you, you've sold quite a few, so you're doing something right. But again, thank you for the time. Uh, the newest book, uh, On the Brink of Everything, has been out for a little while, so hopefully people get a copy of it. So thanks again for the time. It's my honor. Thanks, Luke. Many blessings. Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned.